Welcome to Between Two Lips, a podcast dedicated to all things pelvic health for women. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach, and I am excited to share with you information from leading pelvic health professionals from around the world, stories from women at all life stages who have faced struggles and successes, and of course, I share a little about my own pelvic health journey as well. There is too much silent suffering associated with the female pelvis, and I am on a mission to change that. It's time we talk openly about a part of the body that deserves a whole lot more attention than it gets. Join me each week for casual and candid conversations that will both inform and inspire you to optimize your pelvic health for life. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Between Two Lips. I'm your host, Kim Vopney, the Vagina Coach. And in this week's episode, you just have me. I don't have a guest. It's just me. And I will be sharing my rectocele story. So this is something that I get asked about all the time, pretty much daily. Rectocele is something that is the type of organ prolapse, but it's a little bit trickier than some of the others. So I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But I wanted to share my journey with rectocele that ended up with a surgical repair, but all the things that I did along the way, all the things that I tried, and all the things that I recommend to people who are dealing with a rectocele. So let's jump in. All right, let's dive into what exactly is a rectocele and... What was my experience living with one for nine years? And why is it one of the more common questions that I get? So first of all, we'll start with what a rectocele is. In the pelvis, now we're talking the female pelvis. In the female pelvis, there are organs. We've got the bladder, the uterus, the rectum. We have our vagina in there. And at the top of the vagina is the cervix and the uterus. And a sort of underneath where the uterus sits, there's the bladder. And then behind and yeah, behind is the rectum. In a prolapse, what can happen is one or even all of those organs can shift out of their proper anatomical position and they can bulge into or descend into the vagina. So in the case of a bladder, the bladder can bulge into the anterior wall, the front wall of the vagina. And it can be called a bladder prolapse. It can be called a cystocele. And it can be called an anterior wall prolapse. The uterus can descend from the top down and it's typically called a womb or a uterine prolapse. And in the case of a rectocele, the rectum can bulge into the posterior or the back wall of the vagina and it's called a rectocele, or it can be called a posterior wall prolapse. It's not called a rectal prolapse. So a rectal prolapse is where the rectum bulges out the anus, and this can happen in both male and female anatomy. So a lot of people will message me asking for information about a rectal prolapse, and I have to distinguish to make sure that they really want information on a rectal prolapse but actually the majority of the time they actually do have a rectocele and they just call it a rectal prolapse. So the lingo can be a bit confusing sometimes, which is unfortunate. And when people are being told that they have this condition, they don't know to ask these distinguishing questions. And sometimes people are told 
just that they have a prolapse or that they have a vaginal prolapse. So there is something called a vaginal vault prolapse, and this is most common after a hysterectomy where the top of the vagina starts to turn inwards on itself and starts to kind of sag down. So some people, when they go home and they Google vaginal prolapse, they may see that and it may not be indicative of really what they're dealing with. So I try to help clarify what some of the terminology is and arm people with information. So when they do have a follow-up appointment with their doctor or potentially with a pelvic floor physiotherapist, they can ask more questions and get more information specific to them. So I have had both a uterine prolapse, stage two, and I've had a rectocele, stage two, and the stages or the grades in North America, there's a four point system, four grades, four stages, kind of use those interchangeably. And it reflects how close to the opening that bulge is. And if it's actually bulging outside the entrance to the vagina, that would be considered a stage four when it is right at, when you can visibly see a bulge at the entrance, but it's not bulging out, that would be a stage three. So stage four is when it's bulging out. Stage three is where it's bulging, just visible at the entrance. Stage two is where it's it's about two centimeters-ish away from the vaginal opening. And a stage one is v- a very minor early stage bulge. So that's how they are graded, how they are named. And that gives people more information when they go for follow-ups to ask what stage they're at, what organs or organ is prolapsing. And so in my case, I had not heard of the term prolapse until probably about two years after the birth of my second son. And how I actually heard the term was I was sitting in a doctor's office, not because I was a patient, but because I was trying to introduce this product called the Epino to these doctors. I was almost like a my own medical sales rep. And so I had used the Epino in my births. I became the Canadian distributor and I was trying to get awareness increased and, and out there about this product. So I started to visit doctor's offices. And this was a, a father and a son, both doctors, both OB-GYNs in Toronto, Ontario. And they were very interested in it. Actually, they were the ones who had contacted me because they really liked the product. So they were learning more about it. And they both, in discussion, we were all talking about, you know, how it's used and who can use it and who shouldn't. And they said, could this be used with a cystocele? And and I had never heard the term cystocele. And they went on to sort of talk amongst themselves about, about prolapse and mentioned the term prolapse. And I said that I wasn't familiar. I said, can the those people who have those conditions, can they have insert of sex? And they said, yes. And I said, I don't see any indication why they wouldn't be able to use the epinoin. But I went then home and Googled prolapse and saw some fairly alarming images and learned that this is something that's actually even more common than incontinence and felt very fortunate that I didn't have this. So that was my first experience with the term prolapse. And I sort of forgot about it after that. And when then I started, so it was not long after, within the next year or so that I learned about pelvic floor physical therapy. So I hadn't heard heard this term before. 
And when I learned about what these people do, I, I went to see a woman. Her name's Carolyn Van Dyken. She's also in Ontario. I was living in Ontario for a few years when I first started my business. And I met with her and she very kindly went through what happens in a pelvic floor physiotherapy session. And I left that thinking, how is it that not every single, well, at the time I said, why is it that not everybody who's giving birth sees a pelvic floor physio? Now I think if you have a vagina, if you're a woman, go see a pelvic floor physio. But I started to really preach that to every single one of my clients. And then I said, well, hold on, if I'm recommending this to my clients, I better go myself. I need to understand what happens in this. If I'm telling other people to do it, I should do it too. It's not just something we need to do because we have symptoms. I think there's a preventive aspect here as well. So I went not to see Carolyn. It was a different therapist. And I, at this point, was back now. I had moved back to Vancouver. And the therapist I saw said I had an early stage rectocele. And she said there was a lot of scar tissue in the back wall of my vagina. Now, when I gave birth, I did use the epino. My whole goal at the time really was to avoid tearing, and I did externally. I did not have any external tearing. Even though my first son came out sideways, which is the widest way possible, my midwives were remarking that they found it quite amazing that I had no tears or abrasions. Now, that was external. So obviously, there was some disruption of tissue on the inside, and there was residual scar tissue after. So that's what the therapist that I went to see she saw and felt that tissue, felt mainly, and was sort of an observation that, you know, there's a little bit of weakness there in the back wall, and there's an early stage rectocele. At the time, I had zero symptoms of anything, but I kept that as sort of a mental note and carried on my way. And then a few years later, as I was sort of entering my 40s, I started to get some weird symptoms. Now, looking back, I know that it was the start of perimenopause for me, but I hadn't heard the term perimenopause at the time. I knew the term menopause and was sort of knowing I was approaching that, but I had no idea all the chaos that happens in perimenopause. And one of the things that I actually had had been investigating because it was starting to bother me was after the births of my, well, during my pregnancies and then subsequent postpartum recoveries, I had really, really, really bad hemorrhoids. And afterwards, I still had sort of like what I found out later were skin tags. So it's like the residual skin was left over. They never shrank or went completely away. And it, and it was bothersome. I didn't, I couldn't wear the same underwear that I did before. I didn't like the way that it felt. And I investigated what to do about it. I didn't want to have any surgery. I knew that that was really extreme and difficult to recover from, but I was learning about banding. And so I went to see a doctor here in Vancouver and went through the banding procedure. And it was not long after that, that I actually started to become symptomatic from, well, I didn't know necessarily it was the rex seal, but I just started to feel like I had a prolapse, like all the classic symptoms of a prolapse. And I was able to kind of, you know, work with my physio and manage some of the scar tissue and residual afterwards, but that's kind of when it started. And around that time with the perimenopause transition, I was also starting to become constipated for the first time in my life. And this was really challenging for me because I knew how damaging 
constipation is to the pelvic floor. I was doing all the things that you're supposed to do with regards to managing and dealing with constipation and nothing was working. And years later, I found out I had an autoimmune markers for Hashimoto's and Hashimoto's is a thyroid, autoimmune thyroid condition and constipation is a major challenge. And so once I figured that out, I could get things under control. But until then, it was this constant battle. And I couldn't explain or understand why I was having constipation, even though I was doing all the things and it had never happened to me before. So the result of this constipation was I developed a stage two uterine prolapse, and also my rectocele worsened. And then it was a matter of I was quite symptomatic. I felt like I had something in my vagina. I felt if I didn't have a successful bowel movement, I felt really, really uncomfortable. This is a a weird visual, I know, but this is how I felt. Even though a rectocele, unless it's actually, unless the bulge is coming out the vagina, you don't see it. There's nothing externally that you see. But what I felt like was like a baboon. If you can think of the the rear ends of baboons, they sort of look red and bumpy and inflamed and uncomfortable. <laughs> That's what I felt like. That was the image of what I felt like in my body, even though nobody would have been able to see a thing. And so around this time, again, now I'm I'm working in pelvic health. I'm still learning a lot of things. And a new technique had come on the scene. I found this woman randomly through an internet search who was doing this breathing technique, and she was talking about how it can help with prolapse. I reached out to her, started to learn a little bit more. She Most of her teaching was in Spanish, although she did speak English, and I tried to get her to Canada to teach. She became pregnant, and over the series of a couple of years, it was difficult to get her here. But I was trying to practice what I could see from these online videos. And then finally she came to she came to teach. Now this was in Toronto. But in the meantime a friend of mine had actually developed prolapse and she had didn't want to wait so she flew to Spain to learn with this teacher and she had improvements in her bladder prolapse and she then went back to Spain and she had more improvement and actually completely reversed her stage 2 bladder prolapse. So a lot of us working in the field of pelvic health really wanted to learn this technique. And when this woman, her name was Kaisa, she came to Toronto, she taught the course. And it it was like, we all went in with a little bit of skepticism, but we came out very open to this technique that was providing some hope for people with prolapse. So around the time that I received these diagnoses of prolapse, I also then learned this technique and I put it into practice. And within a few months, I don't remember the exact time, but I think it was in two to three ish months, I was pretty asymptomatic, especially with my uterine prolapse and actually completely reversed it. The rectocele didn't change. But around that same time, I was now starting to implement a few other lifestyle changes, changes to my diet as I was trying to, you know, manage these this hormone disruption that I had and the autoimmune side of things. So I was doing hypopressives diligently. I had changed my diet. I was working to resolve the 
hormone disruption that I was in and nothing was changing with my rectocele. So my, my symptoms were probably, I would say they were a little less. There were some times where I actually would become symptom free for a period of time, but nothing changed actually in the, the status of my rectocele. And it wasn't until I was living with a rectocele myself that I realized that it is, it's sort of different than a bladder prolapse or a uterine prolapse. It, it, it's, I don't want to say that it's, it is a type of prolapse. Some of the sort of modalities or therapies that can help with bladder and uterine prolapse are not always helpful for a rectocele. Things like pessaries. So a pessary is like an orthotic. When you put an orthotic in your shoe to support your arches, a pessary is inserted into the vagina to support the walls and can help push those bulges back out of the way. With a rectocele, especially if the rectocele is lowered down, when you put a pessary in, it would go up over top and, and almost press down on the bulge and could make things worse. So pessaries can be quite challenging. I never found a pessary to be helpful for me. And hypopressives weren't changing. I was doing all the pelvic floor exercise in the world. Nothing was changing. So I, I managed it, but I did get to the point where I chose to see a surgeon. Now, I went, I didn't tell anybody. I, I actually can't remember if I told my husband the first time I went. I, I told him after I had gone, but I can't remember if I told him the day that I was actually going. But I felt like a giant hypocrite, to be honest. I felt really ashamed that I was considering surgery. How could I, the vagina coach who preaches pelvic floor exercise and all these things, how could I be choosing surgery? And so I, I went, I had his, my doctor's take on what I was dealing with, confirming the stage two rectocele, no other prolapse, booked me in for surgery. And I went home, I had these surgical papers, and I sort of stared at this. And it was in, it was going to be in May, it was actually going to be on Mother's Day. And I sat with it and sat with it and sat with it and said, I, I can't do this. I wasn't ready. And a big reason was I had not totally resolved the constipation. And the other thing was in this perimenopause journey, I dealt with very, very heavy periods. And I I bled a lot and I bled often and it was irregular. And so how was I going to be able to know if I was going to be bleeding? What if I had a crazy heavy period on the day of my surgery? Or what if I started a crazy heavy period a few days after during my recovery. So I knew I needed to get that under control. So I canceled that initial surgery and sat with it for a little while. And within, I don't know, probably another year-ish or so, I went back and booked again. And I was asking about what else I could do. I got a, an IUD put in. I had tried everything. Again, I tried Chinese medicine. I was on bioidentical hormones. I changed my diet. I'd done a, a whole bunch of things to try to get my bleeding in check. And it it all helped a little bit, but not enough. And so I didn't want an IUD, but one day with my naturopath, you know, I said, I, I don't like the idea of having artificial hormones. I don't want something inside my body. And she said, I know, but it's also not natural to be losing all this blood. And so anyway, I made the decision to have an IUD put in and that 
that helped. It didn't definitely didn't stop it. Like most people can totally be period free, but it did help and played a role. But again, I still, I canceled the surgery again, just not being ready. I still needed to get that more in control. And my bowel movements were pretty good at that point, but I still felt like I needed some gut health help. So canceled that second one. And it was, it was about four years later. So four years after that first initial appointment where I made the decision. So I had my, my periods in check, my poop was in check, everything was in check. I was doing all the things I had done all the things it had been nine years. And now knowing that I had been in perimenopause, knowing I was now approaching menopause and concerned about the integrity of the tissue, knowing that menopause brings on tissue changes to the vagina, I thought, I think I want to do this sooner than later. The side note, what helped with my periods was stopping alcohol. And I have never been a big drinker at all. I've been married for over 20 years. My husband has never seen me drunk before. It's it's was never a big part of my life. But I did enjoy a glass of wine once or twice a week. And it wasn't until I completely eliminated that that things really changed for me. So taking alcohol, even though it was just a small amount, taking alcohol out of my life, my periods totally normalized and I had no more heavy clots. I had no more really hugely distended abdomen, no more cramps, pain. It totally resolved and it was life-changing. And so now I felt confident being able to go for surgery because I was now I'd managed the constipation. I had the autoimmune stuff in check. My diet was clean. I'd reduced, worked so hard to reduce inflammation in my body, alcohol being a big part of that. And I was ready. So I struggled a little, again, still feeling a bit hypocritical, but I made that decision to go ahead with it. And when I made the announcement to my community, I actually was... I thought there was going to be people who, you know, you're a traitor. And <laughs> but everybody was very supportive. And there was even some people who are professionals like myself, public health professionals who said, you know, I did this too, or I just had this last week and I haven't told anybody. And now you've given me a reason to to share this because it is something that needs to be shared. And what I recognized in the process is while I felt shame and embarrassment, those that's what other people feel. And sometimes even to a greater degree. And I felt very fortunate that I had a lot of knowledge going into this. And I felt very prepared. And I recognize that that is not the story that everybody else has. And the other piece of it was that surgery is an option. It's never the one that I just have people jump to. I don't think it should be our first line of defense when we have a challenge with our pelvic floor. But we need to keep it as an option for people and take away that shame and embarrassment because it's it's an injury. We have a, a lot of pelvic floor challenges are, are a result of injuries and we wouldn't have shame about a shoulder injury or a knee injury. It, a pelvic floor injury is an injury and we sometimes we need surgical repair. So that's kind of where where I was that it's been 2 years now that I had my surgery, but I want to share not so much about that. You can you can read all about my surgery journey on my blog. Post the link below, vaginacoach.com slash blog. 
I share the decision, I share the preparation, I share week by week the recovery and eventual return to fitness. So that's a really good resource there. So I'm not going to focus on the surgery here, but I want to focus on what I did from a coping mechanism when I was living with this. So some of it I don't necessarily recommend. So before I knew the autoimmune piece and the perimenopause piece, I recognized that diet played a big role in how I felt. And I became very controlled in my eating. And I only ate, I basically ate the exact same thing every day at the exact same time. I didn't have anything that would contribute to gas or bloating. Well, I tried to avoid all of those things. Traveling was a little bit more (laughs) of a challenge. But anything that I knew that could potentially contribute to gas or bloating, I would eat later in the day. One, because if I then had to fart, I would have freedom to do so. Because if you ever, when you have a rectocele, when you have that little bulge there, it creates a bit of a pocket and poop can get stuck there and gas can get stuck there. And if you ever can't get poop or gas out, it creates major, major symptoms. So I knew everything that would make me symptomatic and I avoided it. And I had the exact same thing every single day. I don't recommend that because we need diversity in our diet, but that was a coping mechanism for me to make sure that I didn't have, or that I I, I didn't have a lot of symptoms, I guess I'll put it that way. I wanted to avoid a second poop. <laughs> I was usually had no problem with the first poop in the day, but it was the second, or if I had a third poop in the day, that would be the tough one. And the reason is th- that little pocket is where poop can get stuck. And unless there was a huge volume, like a big long poop, I know this is getting a little bit maybe weird for people, but you know what? We all poop. We gotta, we gotta talk about this stuff. If the poop wasn't big enough, so if I'd have a big poop in the morning and if I didn't, if, if the volume of stool was not big enough for the second one, it would, that little, the first part of it would get trapped in that pocket. And then I, it's like I didn't have anything else to push it out. And the prolapse typically gets worse as the day goes on. So that that bulge would typically be more pronounced as the day would go on as, we, as we've been upright against, upright against gravity. And so I tried everything I could to not have a second or subsequent poop. Some people would splint to help get the poop out. And this, you can either apply counter pressure on your perineum. So the area between the vagina and the anus, you can apply pressure upwards there. Some people actually put their fingers in the vagina and push that bulge back. That was never successful for me. It kind of wigged me out a little bit and just it wasn't something that ever helped. So I didn't do that, but that is a strategy that can help a lot of people. Some people also would use glycerin suppositories or fleet enemas to try to get things cleaned out. Again, I never, I never did that. Usually what would happen is if I didn't have a successful second poop. So if I wasn't able to avoid it and I had to go and it didn't come out properly, then I would be very uncomfortable for the rest of the day. And then I would take a stool softener that night. And usually the next morning, everything would come out and I would feel, I would feel like, a brand new person. So there's like, I love pooforia. I had one person in one of my courses say poogasm. And I think those are such great terms because you do, there is this euphoric sense after you have a great bowel movement, it's the best thing. And when you don't have that, it really sucks. Like I was cranky pated a lot 
anyway, so I would have my pooforia the next morning and then everything would be fine and it would, my mood would totally change. But if I ever got that heaviness and wasn't able to get things out, I became very insular. I didn't talk. I sat by myself. I didn't want to move. I would move differently. I didn't want to squat or bend over certain ways because, again, it kind of felt like that baboon butt was going to explode. Obviously, I avoided intimacy. Now, my husband was very aware of all that was going on. I've been very transparent with him and very supportive. So he knew what was going on and he he would, you know, it was kind of like, was it a good poop day or a bad poop day? And then, and that was, <laughs> that was sort of it. But the main things were finding the foods that do not give you gas, do not constipate you, that keep you moving. Decide if maybe times of the day are better for you. And, and then that's how I coped with that. If I was ever traveling and I wasn't able to control my food as much, then I was all, I always made sure I had stool softeners. I still do travel with stool softeners because traveling can kind of throw our, our rhythms off a little bit. And I want to make sure that I keep things moving. One, because I you know, want to get this stuff out, but also I don't want to have this big, huge mass in there that could, you know, potentially increase my chances of, of a recurrence. So optimizing poop and stool is pretty much the biggest part of living with a rectocele. You have to get that under control and recognizing though that it can be frustrating because sometimes that pocket, we might be doing all the things, but that pocket is in our way and prohibiting us from having these proper bowel movements and maybe then straining and that can lead to other types of prolapse, which is what my situation was as well. So in terms of what I would recommend for people with a rectocele diagnosis, is definitely see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Work either on your own or with a holistic nutritionist or somebody who can help you improve your gut health and get things moving regularly and well. The Bristol stool chart, you want to aim for a three or a four. The four is what I consider the gold standard. Anything you can do to help with constipation, whether it's supplements, increasing fiber, increasing water, and hydration, castor oil packs are another thing that were helpful and I still use now. So gut health, there's lots of people talking about gut health now. I would find somebody who can help you. I'm actually going to be interviewing a woman who I follow, Plants First Nutrition, and she will be talking all about poop and she does talk all about poop on her social media. So I'll put her link below, but really optimizing do everything you possibly can to get your poop optimized, splint if you need to, to help get things out. And some people can manage that, no problem. And as soon as they get their poop out, they their symptoms go away and they feel fine and they carry on. That's great. You can try pessaries, the ones that could potentially work with a rectocele. There's one called the Incolite, I-N-C-O-L-I-T-E. I'll put the link below. There's another one called a cube and also a tandem, which is kind of like two cubes put together. I know cube sounds a little bit weird when you put it into the vagina. It does not have sharp edges. It's sort of rounded, but it is in the shape of a, a box type shape. And there's another one called the Marland. And those are the ones that could potentially be successful with people with a rectocele. Everybody's different. Everybody's presentation and sort of landscape is different. So it's kind of a trial and error. There are some companies that are really innovating in this space and will be doing 3D printing based on a person's anatomy, which I'm super excited about. That could be a few years out, but stay tuned because I will certainly be talking to those people. Using a squatty potty is very helpful as well. I recommend 
anybody do this, but especially if constipation is in your, it's something that you deal with or your family, but have everybody poop with a, a squatty potty. I think they are fantastic. Fiber, there's lots of different schools of thought on this and it's not something you just throw a bunch of fiber at it and you're going to be fine. You have to kind of find your balance. There's a great book called Fiber Fueled by Dr. Will Bolsowitz. I really love his information on the gut microbiome and diversity. So really what I was doing from a diet perspective was not serving me, even though it helped me manage my symptoms. It wasn't contributing to optimal gut health. So I totally, totally recommend that book. It's one of my favorites of all time. So work on optimizing your fiber. You also want to make sure that you stay hydrated. And different people will say, you know, six to eight glasses of water a day. Some people say half your body weight in ounces per day. I aim for very minimum two liters, even up to three liters. I also put electrolytes in one of those liters. Bio steel is the one that I like. And... That seems to have helped a lot, but definitely water is really, really important. And I recommend women, especially if you're kind of in the 40-ish years of life, that you do some hormone testing and you do a thyroid panel. And I recommend, ideally, you can work with your medical provider But you want to work with somebody who is open to providing those tests. And even if you need to pay for them, which most likely you you will have to pay out of pocket for them, do it. Hormone testing, I think that my favorite is the Dutch test. Now that is costly. You can do saliva tests. Blood could potentially give you at least a bit of a baseline. You just have to make sure you do the testing in certain at certain times of the month based on your cycle. The Dutch test is my favorite. I have done saliva. I have done blood testing as well. And with the thyroid test, TSH, T3, T4, reverse T3, TPO, and TGAB. The TPO and TGAB are antibodies. And that is what would indicate if what you're dealing with is an autoimmune thyroid condition, or if it's if those aren't present, then it's simply p- potentially an overactive or underactive thyroid. But so many women are diagnosed with hypothyroidism in the perimenopause transition. And I don't know the exact, I don't think there is an exact stat, but a lot of the people I follow and research shows that the majority of people, women diagnosed with hypothyroidism actually have Hashimoto's, the autoimmune part. So we need to check that if that's what it actually is. I went, I was reading all the hormone books. I was taking all the quizzes. I was, you know, estrogen dominant and I did all the things. And I kept also then falling into this bucket of hypothyroidism. And then when I started to read more about hypothyroidism, then I learned about this thing called Hashimoto's. And when I was reading about Hashimoto's, I checked every single box. And then I went to my naturopath and said, can I please have this test? Because I I think this is what I have. And that was that was the big thing for me. So you have to do some investigating and find some root causes. But I think there's a lot of benefit in getting, even if it's just baseline testing of full thyroid panel and a full hormone panel. And then every few years, if you want to check again, you kind of have a, a baseline established or it's something that highlights an issue that you can address. So I would definitely recommend that you do those. So I worked to reduce inflammation, 
I took out gluten. I took out dairy. I took out eggs because they showed up on a food sensitivity test. I do eat eggs again now. I do eat dairy again now. Gluten I still keep out because that is definitely the lots of research to support the autoimmune piece, especially Hashimoto's gluten is a no-no. I will say that I splurge every once in a while, like when I went to Europe and ate a croissant every single day for seven days. But anyway, I, I stick to a gluten-free diet 99% of the time. Make sure your mornings are slow, meaning have time to get up, drink water right away, have some lemon in your water and be able to sit or do some gentle movement and not be rushing around. And I know there are many different circumstances in life and there could be, that's not going to be accessible for everyone. But even if you can spend an extra 10 minutes or extra half an hour just by yourself being quiet to allow your bowels to start going, sometimes the busyness of life doesn't let us be into that rest and digest mode. I also took out caffeine and that wasn't serving me in the perimenopause transition and it was contributing to anxiety and anxiety and stress can influence your bowels and then I would have stress about my bowels. So <laughs> it, it kind of went in a big roundabout, a roundabout thing. But it was a process of, of elimination, no pun intended, of a lot of things along the way that did definitely help me manage my symptoms and get to the point where it wasn't such a bother. But I just looked into the future, knowing I had menopause coming up and said, this is not going to change. It's not going to get better. It could potentially even get worse. And I wanted, I want to do this surgery while I've got the most estrogen. I even went on vaginal estrogen before my surgery and have stayed on it, something I recommend everybody do. So that was, that's kind of all leading me up to that decision of having surgery. And it's again now two years post. I'm very happy that I did it. I had a very successful outcome. The process was, was really positive. And I have, I now, I actually created a program out of it because there's nothing out there to support people through pelvic surgeries, not just rectocele, any type of pe pelvic surgeries. And we deserve a whole heck of a lot more attention than what's actually provided to us. So again, I felt very grateful that I am an informed person and very supported with regards to the professionals that I know. And that's not the story that I hear from so many others. So I, I really want to get the word out there to to help. But that is where I am. That's my rectocele journey. And just ending off pelvic floor physiotherapy strengthening the pelvic floor. And sometimes that means learning to relax, but a blend of relaxation and activation, whole body movement, strengthening the glutes. Definitely, I like hypopressives, even though it did not change the position of my prolapse, it definitely helped with keeping my other organs in check. And also, I just love the technique. It's a it is it is. It's life changing. It's like moving meditation. It really is. So that I 100% recommend and avoiding constipation. I will have more. I'm actually creating a program that will be in my Buff Muff app specific to Rectocele. And a couple of the things I just want to let you know. So for those that don't know, I run a challenge every month. The first of every month, it's called the Buff Muff Challenge. And that is my whole body approach to pelvic floor fitness, really. And it's suitable for anybody with prolapse, without prolapse, with incontinence, without incontinence, whatever you have or whatever you're hoping to prevent. 
it is a whole body approach and highly, highly recommend that you come and check that out. The other thing I wanted to highlight as well is I will be doing a retreat with another pelvic health practitioner, Dr. Bree Grogan. We are doing a pelvic love retreat on Salt Spring Island in August 2023. And we, all the private rooms have been taken, but there are a lot of shared options still available. And we would love to host you. It will be all about living a pelvic health, pelvic centric lifestyle. And the two of us, both of us have many of the same people in our communities. And so we're excited to meet a lot of those people in person and spend six days in beautiful nature supporting our pelvic health. So you can hopefully sign up for that. I will put the links below. And for anybody who wants more one-on-one attention, I also do one-on-one coaching. So I'm here to support you through whatever your pelvic health journey is with or without rectocele. And I thank you for listening. That's it for another episode of Between Two Lips. Thank you so much for choosing to spend part of your day with me. If you are enjoying the show, I recommend subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And I would also be grateful for a positive review. This will help get the information I share into the hands of more people who may not even know that help exists. Finally, I encourage you to take what you learn here and put it into action so that you can ensure that what you hear me and my guests share is not just lip service.